the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Okay. Welcome once again, folks. So always look forward to having you with us here on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Uh, Alan Dempsey is our engineer this weekend, and uh, Andrew Herdliska produces this show for us. And in the first half hour, Jim Stump joins us, founder of Sports Challenge, uh, author of The Power of One-on-One, Discovering the Joy and Satisfaction of Mentoring Others. And, uh, Jim, I'm so happy we can hook up here. How you doing? Well, Pat, how are you? I've enjoyed your book immensely. It's uh, really powerful. And, well, thank you. Uh, so glad you wrote it. Uh, tell me about the power of one-on-one. What does that really mean? Well, it, it means that uh, if you're ever going to get to the bottom of what's going on in another person's life, uh, it needs to be in a one-on-one situation. Uh, I grew up with a lot of small groups and, and larger groups, and that's fine. But I, when I saw the results of meeting one-on-one with uh, athletes, especially at Stanford University, uh, I, I made the decision that that's the way I would take my ministry from that point on. And it really has been uh, a powerful time to be able to sit down across the table with a young man and be able to look them in the eye and earn their trust and then uh, see them open up their lives as I open up my life. And we uh, we spend that time just doing life together. Jim, there are 14 chapters in your new book, which uh, is put out by uh, uh, Baker Publishing. Uh, the first right. chapter, Everyone Needs the Savior. Uh, let's start right there. Well, it's true. Everyone needs the Savior, just like, uh, just like I did when I was growing up. I had uh, a wonderful... Uh, background. My parents were missionaries in Alaska, so I was raised in the outback of Alaska. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did the, uh, the whole Christian thing as well as I knew how, but it just didn't, uh, didn't meet my needs. Uh, I was, I was raised in a background. My parents are wonderful, wonderful people who deeply love Jesus, but they were taught that, uh, if you're going to be a good Christian, you, uh, you're judged on how, what, what you don't do and what you do instead of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I actually did not really commit my life to follow Jesus uh, completely until the age of 22 when I graduated from college. And um, that was the first time when, when I recognized in a significant way the fact that it, I needed a Savior. I'd always lived a good life, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the fact that I needed a Savior really came home to me then. And so that's uh, that's the way I I work things for me. Um, and, I, and I found uh, here at Stanford especially, these are, these are kids that are top of the line. Uh, this last year, I think they set a national record when they only, only accepted 5% of all the applicants that applied to Stanford. So they're bright kids. They they. They've been very successful in everything they've ever tried up to this point. And the tendency is to think that, well, I've got it all together, and I'm going to make things happen in my life. And that's true, and a lot of them do. But they sooner or later come to the point where they realize that they need a Savior. And I found that uh, worked out in practical experience here at Stanford uh, time after time after time through the years. And it's it's rare that a that a young man doesn't sit down with me and and begin to follow through uh, uh, beginning a relationship with Jesus, uh, seeing that explained to him without him saying yes, this is exactly what 
will fill the emptiness that I've uh, had on my whole life, even through all my accomplishments. That emptiness has been there, and the peace comes as they begin a relationship with Jesus and walk with Him. The second chapter is called The Accidental Evangelist. Uh, Jim, is that you? That is me. Huh. Yes. <laughs> what, is it, what, is uh, that, what does that title mean? Well, it, it means that uh, I, I certainly was not looking to be an evangelist. Uh, I, I came by this uh, in, a, in a very uh, roundabout way in that uh, I, when I graduated from Wheaton College, I was expecting to go into coaching and teaching. That had been my lifelong dream. And then I got recruited uh, my senior year to uh, go with a group of uh, young men and women called the University Ambassador Team with Campus Crusade for Christ and start their ministry in Europe after a year of training here in the U.S. So I, with purely selfish motives, Pat, I, I decided I wanted to be able to travel in Europe. And, and it was when I was going through the staff training with Campus Crusade that it all hit me what, what this whole thing was all about. And I committed my life to Christ at that point. And the next day, uh, we were told that we were going to have to go to Huntington Beach and begin to share our faith with uh, people on the beach. And it it just scared me to death. I had, as I said, grown up in Alaska and and, uh, known about uh, the way eagles uh, train their young to fly. And basically, they get pushed out of the nest and and then the mother swoops down below them and catches them just before they crash on the rocks. And and that's the way I felt as we were on that bus going to Huntington Beach in Southern California. I didn't know what I was going to say to people here. I'd just been really a, a follower of Jesus in truth for uh, for a few hours. And here I was going to try to explain to somebody else what had taken me 22 years to grasp. And I, I really was uh, petrified. But I saw as I, as I got down there and began to, to talk with, with young men that God had prepared their hearts. And uh, both of the young men that I uh, talked to that afternoon committed their lives to Jesus. And it was such a thrill for me to, to see, uh, as we talked, uh, the, the genuine openness and interest and commitment um, that these young men had uh, and and so I said, this is this is way better than I ever thought it could be. This is what I want to pursue uh, doing for the rest of. Them. Now I want you, Jim. I want you to talk about the Jesus model. You do a whole chapter on that. Where where does that fit into what our, we're talking about? Well, Jesus uh, obviously when he was when he was here on Earth uh, did not did not do things the way most people would would think um, he he basically uh, even though he had opportunities to speak to huge crowds he didn't uh, he didn't spend most of his time there he basically said uh, I'm going to choose a few men and uh, have them follow me through life and as they followed him uh, he, he taught them he, he never made a distinction between evangelism and discipleship he just said, follow me, let's walk through life together. And so uh, he took the opportunity when huge crowds presented themselves, but he certainly focused his uh, whole ministry on preparing these 12 men to go out and change the world. So that's the model I've chosen to follow. I'm not nearly as good as Jesus was at choosing people. So instead of meeting with, with 12 guys, I, I meet with about 30 to 35 guys a week one-on-one. For an hour each week, and I just uh, help them find a relationship with Jesus if they don't know him when we start meeting, and then uh, help them fall in love with him as, as we go on. And so that's that's the model. It's building relationships and teaching them the principles that Jesus used to prepare his disciples to go out and change the world. Tell me about the power of the gospel, the, the, the fourth topic in your book. Well, the, the power of the gospel is, uh, as we all know, it, it's huge um, to, to change lives. Uh, the example that comes to mind is, is actually in the book, and I'll just share a little bit of it. Uh, when I was in England before I came to Stanford, I met a young man there who was uh, the 
campus leader at Reading University just outside London of the communist movement. And, of course, this was back in the Vietnam War era. And Johnny was uh, a young man who led these huge revolts uh, in London. Crowds of up to 100,000 people would gather on the weekends to protest the war. And he was the one leading that whole thing. But through some mutual friends, I got introduced to him. And as we met for the first time, he asked me what I was doing in England. And I said I was talking to people about the greatest revolutionary that uh, ever lived. We've got more. Hold your thought there, Jim, and we'll be right back. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on AM 950 WTLN. My guest is Jim Stump. Uh, Don't go away. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Police called and broke the bad news to Charles. His personal and financial information was found on an identity thief's computer disk. Nervous and confused, Charles called LifeLock, the industry leader in identity theft protection. LifeLock went into action, uncovering multiple fraudulent credit applications the identity thief was trying to open in his name. LifeLock shut them down and helped him restore his good name and credit. Charles found out the hard way that identity theft is a global crime, a crime that's become so complex you simply can't fight it alone. Your personal and financial information is everywhere. Don't wait for a call from the police before you take action. Visit LifeLock.com now or call and mention promo code AWARE to get a special 10% discount. Call 1-800-838-6010. 800-838-6010. 800-838-6010. See LifeLock.com for details. Network does not cover all transactions and scope may vary. Strength, know-how, pride in performance, integrity. These are qualities that are necessary to build a quality building. They are also the qualities that in today's world are so difficult to find. The Nemo Group is a general contractor that will not disappoint you. The Nemo Group is a local construction company built on the timeless principles of strength, quality, reliability, and integrity. Over 45 years of experience building in Florida, a team of professionals with different specialties. A track record of successful local projects. The Nemo Group, spelled N-Y-M-O, is dedicated to getting your project right and done on time. Renovations, new construction, remodeling. The Nemo Group can handle all of your construction needs. Don't take a chance on second-rate results when you can get your job done right the first time with the Nemo Group. Find out more online at thenemogroup.com. That's N-Y-M-O group.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Tithe Network. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Jim Stump is with us from California. The book is called The Power of One-on-One, Discovering the Joy and Satisfaction of Mentoring Others. Uh, Jim, before the break, you were just getting into that story from England, so pick it up and continue, please. Yes, as uh, as I met Johnny, for the first time, um, he had posters of Che Guevara all over uh, his room in his apartment. And he thought that when I said I had a close friend who was the greatest revolutionary in the world, he thought I was talking about Che, and his eyes got big. And he said, wow, do you know Che? And I said, no, I know Jesus. And he, he kind of took a step But as we began to talk, of course, he defended Che, and I began to talk about the impact that Jesus had had in lives and in cultures. And uh, just very shortly, within a couple of weeks after that, Johnny committed his life to follow Jesus Mm. and began uh, a tremendous movement there on the Reading University campus. And then when he he graduated, he went back to his native Venezuela and began a ministry with university students there with Campus Crusade. And then that morphed into a, a ministry to kids that were living on garbage dumps in Venezuela. And he began taking them off those garbage dumps and telling them about Jesus and giving them a place to to uh, live and, and food to eat. So, phenomenal way that, that Jesus changes lives. Then I want you to talk about the next topic, if you would, uh, effective principles of mentoring. And actually, you do two chapters on that. So let's uh, let's cover that whole issue of mentoring. What do you teach us here, Jim? Well, 
first of all, we have to choose well, like Jesus did. Jesus spent a whole night in prayer before he actually chose the twelve. But quite a lot of people don't uh, don't recognize. I think is that there were a lot of people who wanted to be in Jesus' inner circle, but he chose those twelve, which means that a lot of people kind of may have had their feelings hurt that they got left out. But Jesus knew obviously exactly what he was doing. When I joined the staff of Campus Crusade, uh, I got to know Dr. Bill Bright, the founder. Uh, well, as I spent time with him, and one day I asked him what he looked for in a staff person, and he said, I look for two things. I look for a heart for God and a teachable attitude. So that's uh, the position I've taken, basically. I look for a heart for God and a teachable attitude. Then when I find someone with that, I begin to uh, teach them the principles that, um, that I've learned as I've grown in my walk, and then if they really pick up on that, they become one of my uh, key young men that I mentor. So that is uh, the first step, and then investing in the relationship uh, is next. And when I take on a, a, a new student to mentor, there are a number of things I go over in our first meeting. I want to make sure they understand what they're signing up for, and um, one of the things that, uh, that I tell them is that I intend to become one of their best friends. And that is, uh, in other words, I tell them I'm committed to the relationship for whatever it whatever it takes. And uh, if they if they become a CEO, which a lot of them do, or um, you know, successful in any other aspect, or even if they wind up in San Quentin prison, uh, I'm going to be there for them. And so that relationship uh, is so important. And I tell them that I'm fully committed to that relationship. And uh, so I, I see the weekly meetings that I have with the young men as simply a starting point for a much deeper and more meaningful friendship. Um, I, I don't uh, sit there and just tell them to open up their mouth so I can cram in all the knowledge I have. It's, it's a building of relationship over time. We learn from each other. And uh, that, uh, that association I have with those that I mentor is far more than a passing friendship. And, and actually much more involved in a teaching role, because I become an integral part of their world, and, and they in mine. And that, that's how Jesus taught his disciples, and, and you know, Pat, I think it's still the best approach I know for growing godly men and women in the kingdom. Jim uh, Stump is our yeah. guest, the founder of Sports Challenge, author of The Power of One-on-One. Uh, let, let's get into this next area, Jim, about how, how would Jesus bring your friends to faith uh, first point I want you to talk about, you say he would accept them as they are. Yes. Go ahead, please. Yes, exactly. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, that we struggle with, I think, is wanting people to be a certain way before we're going to be close to them, uh, in, a, in a spiritual sense anyway. And that, that was just not the case uh, with Jesus. He, in fact, his, his enemies, one of their main complaints about him was the fact that he spent time with people who in that culture were considered the lowlifes. And he, he realized that it's, it's the people who recognized they needed a doctor that he wanted to spend time with. And so often we don't see our churches as, as hospitals. Um, these are people who, who come to church who all have needs. We all have needs like that. Jesus, in his time with the woman at the well, um, you know, indicated uh, through that, that he was willing to spend time uh, and, and, and basically be questioned by his own disciples for spending time with this woman. But he did, and as a result of that, a whole town came to him. So uh, we, we need to be able to love the unlovable. Uh, it's, it's a critical, critical principle of evangelism. Uh, people who need Jesus the most are often unlikable people initially. And I tell a couple of stories in the book about uh, people that I met uh, who have certainly not been what I would seek out, but uh, that Jesus made a, a, a strong um, calling in my life to reach out to them. And that is, um, that is the, the amazing thing about him. He reached out to anyone that uh, he came in contact with. And then he, he showed people that he cared. And this is something that uh, I have heard time and time again from the young men at, at Stanford University is they, 
they know that I care about them because I spend time with them. And even even guys who aren't believers yet uh, realize that uh, through my actions and attitudes and the way I conduct myself, that I really care about them as individuals. And I'm available when they're ready and need to talk. And and lot happens. Uh, these kids uh, are, are not exempt from experiencing tough times just because they they go to Stanford. And uh, parents die. Parents get divorced. Uh, friends uh, struggle, and they need some help. And so I have been uh, very in, involved in. Uh, being available to these kids as much as possible so they know that I care. And when that time arrives, uh, they know they can come and call on me. It just happened uh, this week, as a matter of fact, with a young man who was struggling, and he came to me and said, I I just talked to some of the other guys on the team, and they tell me that that, uh, you're not just a guy who sits in the corner of the sports cafe and, and talks to people, but you really care about us. So I am I am here to because I've got some issues, I've got some needs, and uh, I want to know what you have to say. So I'm, I'm continually surprised, Pat, by how often that happens, when I'm not even necessarily looking uh, for it. So, so Jim, um, Jesus would yeah. accept them as they are, uh, mm-hmm. then he would show them that he cared. Right. That's important, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's what I was just just focusing on there that, that he really, really cared about people. And um, that that communicates so much, especially in a culture right now that is is becoming so impersonal uh, with, with all of the uh, social media things. Uh, people say, I've got, you know, 2,000 friends, but how many friends do you really have? Mm-hmm. People that you can call up at any point and, and say, I'm hurting, I need some help. And most people just don't have very many folks that they can do that with. So that's where people need to know that we do care enough to spend time in um, in in finding out whatever it is that they need and helping them to to get through it. Jim, I, young men, yeah. I want Jim. I want you to get into this now. Jesus would teach them how to pray. He would always tell the truth, and he would be a friend for life. Mm. Can, can you uh, can you round that up for us and, and uh, tell us what you mean? Sure. Uh, he would teach them to pray. Uh, certainly the disciples came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. And I found this when I when I came to Stanford, that there were, um, there were a lot of guys who became believers within the first uh, few months that I was at Stanford back in 1970. And a lot of these guys were on the football team that went on to win the Rose Bowl a couple of times. And there was uh, some real interest in how they could begin a relationship with Jesus. And so I started a Bible study with them, and we began to pray for uh, guys on the team. And I told, at one of the Bible studies, I told the guys to just, each one of them, uh, put down the names of three individuals on the team that they thought would never become believers. And we called them the impossible. And I won't take time to go into all the details, but... uh, Within the next 20 years, all three of those men who had seemed the farthest away had all become believers, and two of them are pastors now. So that's what God can do when, uh, in answer to our prayers. And then uh, as far as telling the, the, the truth goes, that's, that's something that Jesus always did. Uh, he was, if people came to him and wanted answers, he didn't... Uh, he didn't walk around the outside of something. He went straight to the, the truth. In fact, in, in John fourteen six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I've found that it's always better to just tell the truth and, uh, and not, uh, not mess around with it. So that's the way I've, I've conducted myself with that. Um, when I was in England, and I tell the story in, in more detail in the book, but uh, I met a young couple over there who uh, were the head of special services for the United Kingdom, for the Air Force. And through, um, through that experience, uh, both of them became followers of Jesus, and, and I told them the truth uh, about who Jesus was at a time when they were resistant but I loved them enough to tell them the truth. And as a result, uh, they both committed their lives to the Lord. 
and have been used mightily for the kingdom through the years since then, here in the U.S. and in England. So that is uh, that is very, very important uh, to do. Jim, this is important as we close now. We've got a couple of minutes. Uh, simple steps to sharing your faith. Uh, you talk about the indescribable gospel of grace. You talk about, would you like to know God personally? And then you close with, it's all about Jesus. Right. So uh, give it, give us a little pep talk here. <laughs> well, the the, uh, the transforming grace that, that only comes from Jesus is, uh, is something that I have uh, I have learned. Uh, not, I'm not all the way there, but I've learned it, and I've seen that grace uh, that that God produces through our lives transform other people so many times. Um, there was a, a tennis family that was very famous uh, back many uh, many years ago, and I I got to know uh, each one of the young men and the and the father and. They were about as resistant to uh, to the grace of, of God as you could imagine initially, but uh, that grace just continued to work down and investigated as we got together and met more and more, and they investigated the evidence. They came to realize that the only way to be uh, re- responsive in a, in a positive way to what uh, they wanted their lives to be like was to commit their lives to Jesus. So they did, and their father, who was their tennis coach, became so enamored with the changes he saw in their lives that he called me and said he was flying to the Bay Area to meet with me, and he wanted to know what was going on in his two sons' lives. And as a result, he committed his life to Christ and uh, actually went back. Uh, I got him involved in a church in his hometown, and he became the director of evangelism for his church and led numerous people to Christ. But it all went back to the fact that... Uh, that God's grace is amazing, and uh, it's it's hard to really put into words. And then, as far as uh, knowing God personally, um, you know, for the the past forty plus years, I've had the joy of meeting and mentoring some of the greatest young athletes in the country. And you know, every one of these guys holds a special place in my heart. And uh, so, I have uh, one of the first things I do is after we've spend an hour or so getting to know each other, I say to each one of them, I don't know uh, uh, if you've ever seen this before, but I've got a little booklet here called Would You Like to Know God Personally? My guest has been Jim Stump, and I highly recommend his book, The Power of One-on-One, Discovering the Joy and Satisfaction of Mentoring Others. Baker Books published it. Uh, We have got more uh, coming up right now on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. When you pass down great recipes generation to generation, you know you've got something good, and you want to share it with the world. That's what the family did at Maddie's Delectable Desserts in Winter Springs. Come sweeten your day with specialized desserts, birthday cakes, cupcakes, character cakes, weddings, special occasions. All customized and delicious, making any special event one to remember. Hear what Central Florida is saying about Maddie's Delectable Desserts. Hey, I'm Sarah. I come to Maddie's every weekend. Sometimes I get the quiche. They are wonderful, great, friendly people that, that serve you. And yeah, we will just be coming back as often as possible. And now there's a second location to get yours, sweet treat. Stop by Tutti Fruity, 513 South Park in Winter Park. Maddie's Delectable Desserts, 521 East State Road, 434 Winter Springs. Hi, this is Peter. We'll see you soon at Maddie's Delectable Desserts. Call 407-542-7663 or tempt your sweet tooth online at maddiesdd.com. From our family to yours. Veteran owned and operated, Maddie's Delectable Desserts. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner of his ransacked apartment, wondering what kind of nitwit steals a futon. Luckily, the Geico Insurance Agency had helped him with renter's insurance, and he got full replacement. Unfortunately, Little Jack Horner had to have his stomach pumped when he ate a six-month-old Christmas pie. Visit geico.com to see how affordable renter's insurance can be. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your hosts, 
Dr. Daniel Forbes, and Dr. John Brooks. Families by Designs airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 950 WTLN. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Jim Stump, our guest in that first half hour. Glad to have him with us. And uh, Drew Dyke is with us. I, I want to talk about his book. It's called Yawning at Tigers. You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. Uh, Nelson is the publisher, and Drew joins us from Wheaton, Illinois. Good to chat with you, Drew. Hey, great to be with you. What does that title mean, Yawning at Tigers? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an unusual one. Uh, basically, it comes from the first chapter of the book. And um, I talk about an incident that most listeners will probably remember. A few years back, in a small town uh, uh, named Zanesville, Ohio, there was a public emergency. Uh, this guy who had a private zoo decided, for some reason, still unknown, to release all his wild animals, which included lions, tigers, bears. Um, before tragically taking his own life. And I remember watching the news coverage about this as uh, the public kind of scrambled for safety and, and people were ordered indoors and they locked their doors. And, and for just a few days, you know, you had in a, in a little town uh, wild, exotic animals, dangerous animals loose. And it sparked this discussion on animal laws. But for me, it took my mind in a different direction. I started to think about the way we relate to God. And God is more powerful, more exotic, more foreign than any wild animal, and yet, often, the way we relate to him is so casual, uh, almost lackadaisical, and I wonder sometimes if we would realize what kind of entity, what kind of being we're engaging. This is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and uh, he's very dangerous and very different from us, and I think we fail to appreciate that. So that's where the title came from, Yarning at Tigers, uh, basically, that we, we fail to marvel at God's uh, majesty and splendor. Drew, there are twelve chapters, twelve topics in your new book, and I want uh, I want to cover them. Uh, the first one you simply call divine invasion. <clears throat> what what does that mean? Well, you know, I just kind of alluded to it a little bit. Just the fact that we have this God in our midst who is um, so foreign to us in many ways, and I think sometimes as Christians we lose sight of that and. We focus exclusively on God's love. Of course, there's nothing wrong with talking about God's love. But my fear, you know, and I grew up in the evangelical world. My dad was a pastor, and so I know the church well. And if you drop in on most church services, often you'll hear the courses that are all about God's love. The sermon will drip with assurances of God's affection for you. Again, that's all good. But what's missing, in my opinion, is uh, mentions of God's holiness. Uh, let alone, I mean, he's never mentioned his wrath in most services uh, in his justice. But those are important because if we fail to marvel at God's holiness and the fact that he is far above us and beyond us, I don't think we'll really grasp how amazing uh, his love is, the fact that he stooped to uh, love us, to find a way through his son, a costly sacrifice, to have a relationship with us. The next thing... introducing the idea of the first chapter. <clears throat> Drew, I want you to talk about Beyond the Shallows next. Yeah, that was a, uh, uh, the kind of metaphor for that chapter was sparked. I remember I was in Hawaii for my 10-year anniversary, and I had my 8-month-old son along with us. And uh, it was a great trip, although, you know, with a, with a baby in tow, it's a little tougher to do all the things you want to do. But I remember one evening, as my wife was getting ready for dinner, I decided to take the little guy down to the beach. And since I'm up here in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, we had, he had never seen the ocean. And I was curious to see what his reaction would be. And um, as I took him down, and, you know, these big waves were coming in and crashing on the beach, and it was kind of a violent scene, very beautiful. But instead of being delighted by it, he was horrified, burst into tears and stifled a scream against my shoulder, I remember, and I felt bad right away. And I guess I should have anticipated his reaction, uh, because the ocean, though beautiful, is also very powerful and can be overwhelming, especially if you've never seen it before. And that got me thinking again about God. And, and the fact is, you know, even though the ocean inspires introspection and people have written poetry about it and everything, I think it's a lot like God in that sense that it's also very dangerous. You don't want to go out into the ocean if you're not a good swimmer, if you don't have the proper equipment. 
I think we need to approach God with the same sort of sobriety and appreciation for his power and majesty as the ocean. And so I talk about, you know, leaving the shallows, and that is, I define that as when we kind of make up our own idea of God, we screen out all those attributes that we don't like, or the ones that clash with our modern sensibilities, and we just fashion a God who makes us comfortable, who we find comforting. And that's being in the shallows. Now, I challenge readers to try to strike off into the depths and explore God as He really is, in all his glory, as the Bible describes in the full portrayal, Old Testament and New. And I think when we do that, we find our lives are much more meaningful and our worship is richer. Drew Dyke is our guest. <clears throat> his book is called Yawning at Tigers. Uh, here's the third topic, Drew, I want you to get into, the God worth worshiping. You know, as uh, 20-somethings, my wife and I were kind of nomadic uh, because we were pursuing educational opportunities, different jobs, we ended up traveling around the state. We lived in Portland. We lived down in Orlando, where you are. Uh, we uh, moved up to Chicago, finally. We spent a couple of years in Los Angeles. And it was uh, interesting because we got to kind of sample the spectrum when it came to churches. Uh, and, of course, you don't get the full experience of a church when you can only stay for a year or two. Um, but I remember, you know, after attending multiple churches, saying to my wife that I felt like there was something missing. We had fun, and we connected with some communities. And at the end of the day, though, I just felt like I had this nagging sense that something was missing from our church experience. And it was my wife who actually put her finger on the problem. She said, there's no sense of the sacred, of God's holiness, it seemed at least, in some of the churches that we had attended. And again, I'm not blaming anyone. It's as much my fault as anyone. But often, I think, when we just focus exclusively on the things that make us feel good about God, uh, we want to stand in awe of a transcendent, holy God. I think that's a core, deep desire in all of humans, whether they realize it or not. And when we give people just a cosmic buddy, uh, I think we're shortchanging them. And often I fear that's what we're doing in church, and we really need more of that sense of God's otherness, holiness, and transcendence. What does it mean when you say a vision of holiness? Yeah, that's, that's the next chapter where I talk about, okay, you know, I've looked at Isaiah 6, and a lot of listeners are probably familiar with that. This is this incredible vision where Isaiah sees God high and lifted up above the temple, and there are angels that are called seraphim surrounding Isaiah, and the, the power and glory of God is so overwhelming that they actually use their wings to hide their feet and face from God's glory because they can't stand it. So it's a powerful image, and of course, in the aftermath of that, Isaiah falls to the ground and he says, Woe is me. I am wound, some translations say. Uh, he's just overwhelmed by this vision of God. Now, most of us don't have a vision like that. I haven't had mine, and frankly, I'm glad that I haven't. <laughs> uh, but I think that we need a vision of God uh, to, you know, we need to have that appreciation for what Isaiah saw, I believe, even if we don't experience it firsthand because I think it has huge implications for our lives. First of all, it allows us to live holy lives. There's a lot of hand-wringing right now among Christians, and rightfully so, about what's happened to holiness. You know, especially the younger generation. A lot of them seem to view any talk of holiness as sort of um, legalistic or optional. Even, you know, you don't really have to wait for marriage to have sex. You, don't, you can get drunk, you can do all these things, and, and still be a Christian. Well, I, I think the reason we have the confusion on such a basic Christian doctrine is whole personal holiness is because we've lost the theology of divine holiness. We don't appreciate God's holiness enough, and there's a direct link in Scripture between God's holiness and our holiness. Um, so that's, that's one implication right there. Now I want you to get into dangerous living, please, Drew. <clears throat> yeah, I had a great conversation years ago with a man named Daniel Walker. And what he did, he's from New Zealand, and he was a police officer there. One day he decided, he looked at the problem of sex trafficking around the world, and he said, I'm going to do my little part in combating that. And basically what he did, and this is really gutsy, and I certainly wouldn't recommend people without training do this, but he infiltrated brothels, uh, often in places like Colombia and um, other places around the world, uh, posing as a customer, wearing a, a hidden mic, and he would purchase girls, and get the whole thing um, recorded on his uh, his microphone, go to the local law enforcement, and often, uh, with his testimony, 
shut down the brothels and free these women and girls. Incredible, incredible stuff. And as I was listening to them, I kind of felt jealous. I thought, you know, why are guys like this doing incredible things? And I seem, me and my friends seem to be stuck playing spiritual defense. And I realized another reason that we need to understand that God is dangerous is because we're supposed to be dangerous too. And I'm not talking about hurting people. I'm talking about being dangerous to the structures of sin, things that ensnare people. I think a lot of Christians are far too safe. I think Satan doesn't worry about us too much because, frankly, we're not a threat to what he's doing. I really long for the case when people follow the example of our dangerous God and become a, a true threat to the evils around them, like Daniel Walker. And incidentally, it doesn't have to be that you've traveled to Columbia or some of these places. I think we need a dangerous God as much in the uh, suburbs of America as we do uh, in brothels in Colombia. Now, uh, let's talk about God incognito. What's that mean? Hmm. Yeah, this is just an observation that in Scripture, God often, you know, once in a while you get an Isaiah 6 vision, uh, or John's visions on the island of Patmos. The heavens split, and, and a character sees this amazing vision of God or has this undeniable encounter. But let's face it, most often that's not how God works in our lives, even in Scripture. It's often more subtle. The truth is that God shows up in ways that are easy to dismiss, um, tempting to deny, and just more subtle than that. And so I think it's important, um, and I encourage people to do this in the book, to be aware for God's sightings, if you will, or, or um, ways in which you can see God at work in the world around you. I think of what Jesus said, as you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you said unto me. So quite literally, when we uh, encounter the marginalized, disenfranchised, the poor, the marginalized, you are, in a very real sense, encountering Christ. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus he didn't run around when he was on earth shouting that he was the Messiah. He was very enigmatic and cryptic, sometimes about his identity. Now, of course, I believe that he taught he was the Messiah, but he really... Um, was veiled often. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, which was a very kind of humble reference, which in the day meant human, basically. And um, he revealed himself to those who were truly speaking. And so I think it's important to keep our eyes open uh, for God's hiddenness in the world, if you will. Now, at the same time, when we see, when we acknowledge that he is often hidden in our lives, um, we still need to remember that he's the same God of Isaiah 6. His throne is still exalted. The seraphim, the angels, still cry holy, uh, no matter the disguises that he might wear. Now, uh, we need to talk about loving a lion. That's the seventh <laughs> topic. Uh, what does that mean, Drew? One friend remarked to me once that when you're out um, camping or hiking, you don't want to run into a ferocious animal. That's so true. Um, and yet, when you go to the zoo, that's the first animal you want to see, right? Or the big ones, the scary ones, the bear, the lion, um, the tiger. Those are uh, the animals that we're drawn to, and I find it fascinating that even though they're dangerous, um, we're drawn to them, and I think it's precisely because they are dangerous. I think that's the reason we tuck our kids into bed clutching stuffed bears and tell them stories about dragons, because there's this mixture of fascination and fear when it comes to something that is exotic and dangerous. And I think it's the same way with God. And again, I, I, I lament the fact that in a time when people are so thirsty for transcendence, for that experience of encountering God, um, whether they know it or not, uh, as Christians, we often sideline God's transcendence. We don't want to talk about God being holy and uh, majestic. We just simply want to talk about Him being your friend and being nice. Um, but I think not only does that shortchange our experience of God and make our, our worship less meaningful, but it hurts our witness to the outside world, because people truly want to stand in the presence of something great and terrible. My guest is uh, Drew Dyke, and uh, his book is called Yawning at Tigers. You can't tame God, so stop trying. And... Uh, Drew is an interesting guy, managing editor of Leadership Journal, a publication of Christianity Today, a frequent speaker at pastor conferences. He's made many media appearances, lives with his wife, Grace, and their son in the Chicago area. 
Uh, that's Wheaton, Illinois. And we'll be back with Drew. We've got another segment to talk about his book, Yawning at Tigers. Just a reminder, uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. One of the biggest joys of any church, growing the congregation and bringing new members, also presents one of the biggest problems, the challenge of having to renovate or even build new buildings. That challenge is further complicated by the complex network of local building codes and regulations that have greatly expanded in recent years. Don't let this complex process steal your joy. Call the Nemo Group, the Christian construction company that is serving the Central Florida community with quality, strength, and integrity. The Nemo Group is inspired by the Old Testament work of Nehemiah, and they will build a wall of protection around your construction project. The Nemo Group has a team of pros with over 45 years of collective experience. You can count on them to get your project done right, on time, and for a fair price. The Nemo Group, spelled N-Y-M-O, specializes in church renovations, but is also available for business or homeowner projects. Contact them today at nymogroup.com. That's nymogroup.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Tithe Network. If you're the mother of a child with behavior problems, I'd like to talk to you. My name is Janet Lehman. I'm a behavioral therapist and a mom. I know what it's like when the child you love becomes a defiant, out-of-control child who disrespects you. That's why my husband James and I created the Total Transformation, the program that tens of thousands of moms are now using to turn around their child's behavior. If you've heard about the Total Transformation and wondered if it will work for you, now you can try it for free. I'm willing to give away a 1,000 programs today for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. We'll let you keep it for free. I know the total transformation works because I used these techniques with my own son and with troubled kids for over 30 years. Let me prove to you that it works by giving you the program for free. Call now, 1-800-241-0676. 1-800-241-0676. That's 1-800-241-0676. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Drew Dyke is my guest, uh, the author of Yawning at Tigers. We're covering his new book. And, Drew, uh, the next topic I want you to talk about is called Tenacity and Tenderness. Yeah. The book starts out talking about God's holiness and his otherness and how he's so unapproachable. And that really is just a setup. A lot of people, even early on, even though the book came out very recently, they will say, well, it sounds like you're making God out to be harsh or cruel. Um, Not at all. I'm not trying to minimize God's love. Quite the opposite. I'm trying to magnify it. But I think it's important to lay the groundwork that God is holy and unapproachable before we can understand the gospel. And that is that he has made a way for us to be close to him, to have intimacy with him. And in that chapter, Tenacity and Tenderness, I look at God's interactions, especially with the Israelites through the Old Testament. And it's incredible. It sounds maybe a little sacrilegious even to say it, but God comes off like a spurned lover. Again and again, he pursues his people gently, patiently, and repeatedly. As we know, they turn away from him. They worship idols. They disobey him. They grumble. And, of course, I'm not trying to be hard on the Israelites. We're the same way. And I think anyone listening to this can probably attest to the fact that repeatedly throughout their lives, God has been patient and kind and loving and pursued us. And um, I think it's incredible when we realize that. And he does that, and it, it, it woos us, it softens our hearts to a relationship with him, and ultimately it, it inspires us to love him back. And so I'm just amazed at, at when I look at Scripture, God's long-suffering love us. And even though he's so holy, um, he uh, continues to pursue us, um, even though it costs him quite literally everything when he sent his son. What do you tell us in that section called Intimate Beginnings? Yeah, I recount um, a class at seminary that was very meaningful to me personally. We looked at John, and the opening passage of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, that great 
great soaring retelling of the Genesis 1 account, of course, in the beginning. And I think it, it, it gives us this incredible dynamic picture of the intimacy. I'm getting into some kind of deep weeds here, I realize, but the intimacy that there was between God and His Son before we even got on the picture. Um, the word, the, 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 in the Greek there, the, the, the words are saying not that, that the Word was with God, but actually that the Word was toward God. The Greek word is pros, as in proceed. And so you get this image of God and the Son dwelling in eternity past, past face-to-face in unbroken intimacy. And it was out of the overflow of that love that the, the material world was created, that we sprang into existence. And so what I'd like to say to people is that here's the good news of the Gospel. that goes right back to the very beginning. In the beginning, there wasn't just some primordial ooze or black absence. In the beginning was love. In the beginning was the Father and the Son dwelling in unbroken communion. And um, you were created out of that. I was created out of that. And though we were separated from God somewhere along the line, since then he has been pursuing us in love to get us back, to restore that ancient intimacy that he intended to have with us all along. Face-to-face, that's the next topic. Yeah, I talked about that a little more, basically, that that we are invited into that ancient intimacy with God the Father and with the Son, and that is really uh, the, the, the point of the Gospel. And um, I think really, sometimes, though, it's hard to internalize that, to really believe that God loves you. I think a lot of people have a deep-seated fear. Somewhere nagging, deep down, they feel like, you know what, I've sinned too much, I've strayed too far, and God doesn't truly want me. He doesn't really want me. Well, the Gospels and the Bible say over and over again that He does. Um, And I think really the big question for us in our lives is simply this. This is a question that the answer to it will, will... ripple throughout our life on Earth and out into eternity. And the, the question simply is this, are you going to believe that God loves you? The Scriptures say over and over again that you can, that at His His right hand are pleasures forevermore, He owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills, that He's gone to prepare a place for you, that He loves you with an everlasting love. But the question that I, I wrestle with, a lot of people wrestle with, are we going to believe that? Are we going to internalize it? And, and enter into that love that God has for us. What about Jesus in the shadows, Drew? That I uh, recounted an experience that I had uh, serving as a short-term missionary for a summer uh, in Albania. And it was, it was a brutal experience, to be honest. I was 20 years old. This was in 1999. Some people may remember the, the brutal war that was going on there and the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Kosovo of the native Albanians. And I was in Albania as these refugees, many of whom had lost everything. Their houses, family members murdered, um, were coming back into the, the country. And we were kind of the first stop where they, where they stayed in this gymnasium. We packed them in there. It was crowded. It was smelly. It was awful. And I um, had the, the, uh, the privilege, really, and the burden of dealing with these people in the wake of brutal loss and tragedy. And I remember in the midst of that, even though we were just, you know, bathing babies and distributing food, um, one of our team members printed up and had translated a brief synopsis of the gospel. And most of them were kind of Muslim or cultural Muslims. And I thought, I don't know if this is a good idea. And he wanted me to give it a read before we handed it out. And I looked at it, and I remember reading it, and it kind of whistled through the Old Testament and came to the story of Jesus. And then I remember the, the story of Jesus that just said, Jesus was taken by evil men and murdered. And suddenly, I kind of thought in a new way. I thought, yeah, this is something that these people who had lost so much are going to be able to relate to. And in truth, this is what we all need. We want a Messiah who has suffered, too, because when we come to those points in our lives, um, and it it happens to all of us eventually, whether we lose a loved one or, or encounter some tragedy, our lives are going to crash at some point. And when we do, we want the man of sorrows. We, we want a cross, Jesus' cross, that stands beside the losses of our lives. And so I just talked about how meaningful that was to me to have that, um, that presence of Christ when our life goes into the shadows. And uh, only, only Christianity, incidentally, portrays a God 
who has suffered with us. Um, that's that is totally unique to our faith, and I'm I'm glad it is. Uh, I'm eager to hear about the last uh, chapter. It's called the fragrance of eternity. Uh, fill us in on that, Drew. Sure. Basically, at, in the last chapter, I turned to exploring. Okay, God is holy. We've talked about that. God is loving, intimate. We've talked about that and the importance of maintaining that paradox. I think the temptation is always to collapse one side of it and say, no, he's just loving, or no, he's just holy. But Scripture clearly teaches that he is both holy and loving. Then the question becomes, as Christians, how do we live our lives? How do we relate to the culture? That's a famously difficult question, right? Because we say, well, should we just immerse ourselves in the culture so we can reach people and love them? Or should we cordon ourselves off in our holy huddles so we can remain as pure as possible to be distinct from the world? Well, of course, both options are no good. I think the clue for how we are to engage and relate to the culture is found in the very nature of God himself. God is both holy, that is, he is He is completely sinless, completely righteous, and separated from humanity. At the same time, in the person of Jesus, he came among us. And Jesus didn't live in a palace or an ivory tower and, and give us truths from a safe distance. He jumped in, as we know, to the mess of humanity, even though it cost him his very life. So we need, as, as, as children of our Father in Heaven, we need to follow suit. We need to emulate his example. And so we try to retain our purity. We are in the world, not of it. At the same time, I think true holiness is, is you know, getting dirty up your armpits. It's jumping into humanity, loving people, which is messy. It's a tangly, hard thing to do. And yet, if we're serious about following Jesus, that's exactly what we do. Well, Drew, you've been uh, terrific, and I'm so glad that we could visit here. And uh, congratulations on your book, Yawning at Tigers. I, I wish you uh, good success. Thank you so much, Pat. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Drew <clears throat> Dyke, our guest. And uh, we'll have a wrap-up, folks, right after this. Uh, you've been listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. We do it every weekend on AM 950 WTLN. And uh, stay with us for our wrap-up. And uh, so glad that you could uh, plug in here this evening with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hey, it's Bill Bennett. If you're like me, you like to do business with American-made businesses that build and sell American-made products. Well, American Kitchens is just such a company. For over a decade, Tom and Barbara Vravis and their team have been serving thousands of Central Florida homeowners and home builders with the highest quality kitchen and bathroom cabinetry. From frame to frameless, inset to full overlay, classic wood to contemporary, American Kitchens has it all. American Kitchens also offers cabinetry from Waypoint. Add organization and more room to your room with Waypoint Cabinets and American Kitchens. Have a dream kitchen or bathroom in mind? American Kitchens will customize the design to meet your desires. American Kitchens has a Better Business Bureau A-plus rating. No other kitchen restoration company in Central Florida can say that. Shop online at AmericanKitchensFL.com or hit pound 250 from your cell phone and say kitchen. American Kitchens, American made right here in Central Florida. License number CBC 12596655. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the uh, Saturday Evening Power Hour. We always look forward to our visits with you. Uh, Jim Stump was our guest in that first half hour, and glad that he could join us. And then Drew Nathan Dyke from uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, talking about his latest work, Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. Uh, my latest book is out. It's called The Mission is Remission, uh, Hope for Curing Cancer, uh, Hope for Your Cancer Battle. It's in bookstores now and uh, Amazon.com, a good way to order books as well. And uh, I hope you enjoy that one. Uh, have a wonderful day tomorrow uh, at church with your family and a good week ahead. Oh, one more other thing. Check my website. It's patwilliams.com, patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, we'll be back next weekend uh, for some more interesting chat and talk with uh, 
Christian authors, Christian leaders, always look forward to these visits, folks. Uh, So long and have a great week ahead. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.